Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's regular Brexit podcast, and I'm John Henley. In this episode, we're going to be looking at what looks set to be one of the thorniest questions of the whole Article 50 divorce talks, one of the three areas where the EU has said sufficient progress must be made before it's prepared to move on to talks about its future relationship with Britain. That is, the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. After Brexit, this 310-mile-long boundary will become the only land border between Britain and the European Union. And under EU law, that makes at least some kind of customs check on the very substantial quantity of goods that cross it every day mandatory. It also raises some awkward questions about the movement of people. If the current common travel area between the UK, Northern Ireland and the Republic is preserved, there would be nothing, in principle, to stop EU nationals travelling through Ireland into the UK after Brexit, and that's hardly compatible with taking back control of migration. And then, of course, there's a hugely sensitive political dimension to the border issue too. After nearly 20 years of the peace process, no one wants Brexit to result in any rolling back of the social and economic progress made in Ireland since the Good Friday Agreement, or to see a return to the hard border with its checkpoints and security barriers and observation posts, all of which were targets for attack during the Troubles. Now, both the EU and the UK have said they want at all costs to avoid a return to that hard border and instead keep the so-called invisible border across Ireland that's existed since the Good Friday Agreement. The question is, of course, how? Britain has called for as frictionless and seamless a border as possible, with waivers for people and goods crossing between Northern Ireland and the Republic, technology aimed to eliminate physical border checks, and Britain taking full responsibility for monitoring the border and even collecting EU customs duties. And those are plans that the EU quite recently has dismissed as fantasy and magical thinking. So, what are the issues around the border How might they be resolved? And how likely is this whole question to poke a stick in the wheel of the whole Brexit process? With me to discuss all this are in the studio The Guardian's Brexit correspondent Lisa O'Carroll, who's written a great deal about this question, and on the line Ruth Tyon from the Centre for Cross-Border Studies, and Martina Anderson, a Northern Irish MEP for Sinn Féin. Welcome to all of you. Can I start with you, Lisa, by asking you first to describe what the border is actually like at the moment. How does it work? What does it look like? And why does it matter to the Republic 
that it continues to work as smoothly as it does now? Uh, well, at the moment, it is invisible. Um, if you travel from the Republic to Northern Ireland, there is absolutely nothing to distinguish between the south of the border and the north, apart from uh, yellow markings on the road on the south change to white. And that is about it. The other interesting things about the physicality of it, it, it is not, as the Irish ambassador recently remarked, it's not like the Rhine. It's, mm. There's no natural border. There's no river partitioning um, the six counties from the 26. So in some places, particularly over to the east, it goes up and down a bit like you can imagine um, the pulse being shown on on monitoring a hospital. So if you can imagine somebody who's travelling from a town like Monaghan to Dundalk to um, work, they may cross the border four times. So it it creates big challenges for the movement of goods, but also for people, people who commute. Do Do you know how many people do commute? Something like 38,000, 40,000 commute. Okay. I mean, there's a, there's a huge trading relationship. And basically, since peace agreement in 98, um, essentially what's happened is industry has consolidated, particularly in agriculture. So you have a huge amount of cross-border co-production. So you might have dairy or meat products going down to, uh, south of the border to a processing plant, say milk um, made into infant formula or dried powder for cream for ice cream products, um, etc. And going back up to the north, maybe packaged there and then coming back down to Dublin and sent across to the Irish Sea from Dublin Port. So, yeah, it's absolutely seamless and, and flourish, and, uh, flourishing as a result of peace. And a lot of people, it's fair to say, whose livelihood would be would be very severely impacted if it were not to work as it works as it does today. Yeah. And the Irish economy is, is definitely already been impacted. The drop in sterling has has reduced um, revenues and lots of Irish businesses that export to Britain. Mm. Um, it's, very, it's very tangible. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we have actually seen a number of mushroom fact or mushroom farms I go out of business just because of the sterling differential. Hmm. So, I mean, that's a very early impact. But uh, Exactly. Yeah, Martina, voters in Northern Ireland voted to remain uh, in the referendum last summer, didn't they? Looking at the North's economy and, 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 you know, the practicality of people's day-to-day lives, do you recognise what Lisa's saying about the Republic? I mean, how big a factor for the people of Northern Ireland is this invisible border? It's absolutely massive. Brexit is a disaster for Ireland, just like petition was. And the reason why there is no physical border, because the six counties is a mickey-uppy place, that was created as a consequence of petition so that there would be an inbuilt majority. But that's another topic. Mm. We don't have um, we don't have a, a physical border because there are, in fact, 177 border crossings across mm. the artificial uh, create a border of Ireland, and there's 177 HGVs and 208,000. That's 177,000 and 208,000 light fans hmm. cross that border every day. 30,000 people cross the border every day, every day to work or to study. There's 110 million people cross the border that is created artificially created annually. This is a disaster. For, for the people of Ireland and 56% of the people of the north of Ireland voted to remain within the EU. Mm. And given the British paper, the most recent paper on the 16th of August, states that the British government claims that it is going to uphold the Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts, welcome words, I must say, if only they were true, because the British government then goes on to inaccurately state 
that it is up to the people of the North alone to change the constitutional status. And that ignores the fact that the co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement, the Irish government's position on this, is stated quite clearly, and the people of the South of Ireland, that the Good Friday Agreement states that it's up to the people of the island without external impediment. Mm to exercise the right to self-determination. So the British government, despite on the one hand, is stating quite clearly in a paper to the EU that it is going to uphold and protect the Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts, and I think your listeners should have that unpacked. But Mm. then on the other, it is also already breaching that Good Friday Agreement by not just some of the commentary it it says in in the document, and also with its relationship being propped up by one of the parties in the North, the DUP, when the British government in the Good Friday agreement, it is stated it will act with rigorous impartiality. So it is not doing any of that. And given what we've had over the last 20 years, the hard one piece process that we have, that we still have to consolidate and build upon, it's absolutely reckless and wrong that a Tory DUP administration is driving forward a Brexit agenda in the manner that they are. Looking just, you know, at the kind of practicalities of uh, of borders more generally, uh, and the possible economic uh, um, impact of a change in 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 Ireland to the way that border works, Ruth, I'd I'd like to ask you. Um, I mean, obviously, that you know, the EU ha- has land borders with with plenty of countries. Could could you talk a little bit about the issues um, of the Irish border as far as Brussels and the EU 27 are concerned. I mean, what what kinds of custom checks and other sort of arrangements are there in place on other borders? And is there anything that makes Ireland in any way unique, apart from obviously, as Martina was saying, that you know the vast significance of the Good Friday Agreement? Lisa was just saying about you know traveling from Monaghan to Dundalk, which both of which are in the southern side of the border, and yet to drive on on the road, you know, the main road mm. to get there, you're crossing several times. I'm based in Armagh. And if I wanted to go to Monaghan uh, or Cavan, you know, half an hour or an hour down the road, I could be crossing the border six times. So people who are working, for instance, your small firms or your farms or whatever, never mind the sort of individual, and we can talk about the free movement of people Mm. in a minute, but, you know, just in terms of that, it's a very rural border. There's a long history and, you know, I think we have to, it's very hard to disentangle these things because you then have to look at the role of the border in terms of the conflict that we did have here, mm. which, you know, a lot of the the basic issues around why that was a contentious border are still there politically. Mm. So, you know, it, there is the question of, yes, if you had any kind of visible physical border there, which it is very hard. And I think, you know, the former president the other day, Mary McAleese, was kind of talking about how difficult it would be to envisage not having some sort of um, checkpoints there for goods and services. It is very hard to imagine how you square that circle. You know, there's, there's no such thing as a soft border. We need to be very clear about this and this notion and concept that has been put forward by the British government of a frictionless border. That's fiction. It does not exist in European terms, and Michelle Barnier has been very clear about that, and that is why Sinn Féin has put forward a case for designated special status for the North to remain within the EU because mm. of all the damage that's going to be caused, as has been outlined by Ruth. Uh, Martine is absolutely right. The, the notion of a soft border is, is fiction. The point that uh, Michel Barnier may have been making is that the UK can have whatever it likes on its side of the border. It can operate Wild West. It can have 
beef impregnated with tons of hormones. It can have the chlorinated chicken and have what it's like. It likes, but it, the onus will be on Ireland as a member of the EU to comply with EU law. The issue actually is on the Republic side of the border. So uh, that said, you've got to remember, I think, Martini, that m- while Michel Barnier may have said that uh, the frictionless border is, is impossible, the EU, the will is there, the political will is there. They have asked for everybody to come up with a creative and imaginative solution. And the issue is that nobody has come up with that. Well, I, I would say that we have. The special status is one thing that the DUP don't agree with that. They've said that publicly. Years. They wouldn't. But there's another there's another solution, which is that Northern Ireland stays within the customs union. And to go to John's question, yes, there are examples of that in Europe. Andorra, for example, mm. is not in the EU, but it has a customs union arrangement. Mm-hmm. And then there's another solution, and that's Irish unity. Well, can I maybe, without being quite so, um, I suppose, politically partisan or whatever, but the Centre for Cross-Border Studies has also suggested sort of a two models, but, but also based on the framework of the Good Friday Agreement, because we think there are serious damages. And I know you want to get on to the, the agreement mm. in, the, in a few minutes, but there are serious threats to that, I think, from the Brexit process, despite all the assurances that we've had from, um, you know, all three sides, really, in the negotiations, that it's, it's not going to be damaged, because I think there are real dangers to it being unpicked. And what we're arguing is that rather than seeing it as one of the challenges, start with the Good Friday Agreement and look at the options. And, and we've suggested two ways. Now, we're not saying, we're not calling it special designated status, but it certainly takes into account the commitments that are there because that treaty should be sacrosanct. That it does provide, because the Republic of Ireland or Southern Ireland, you know, is both in the European Union and will also be you know, within the, the architecture and the structures of the Good Friday mm. Agreement, there are a couple of models there in which which really mean that you could have, I mean, I think the way maybe to describe it is overlock, overlapping customs unions um, where you can have goods and services transferred throughout the island without any problem. And then, you know, it's a question of whether Northern Ireland goods and services can go into the EU through the Republic or otherwise a special dispensation or, you know, and be, have origin, you know, rules of origin Mm. or whatever that are different from the UK. So if the UK is out of the customs union, Northern Ireland is still in it as, you know, because of its status within the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, that that is, yes, I mean, that, and that clearly is, uh, I mean, if we're looking strictly at the sort of the trade uh, and commercial aspects of it um, at the moment, that surely is the big issue, isn't it? I mean, surely the EU's fear, Lisa, um, is that what what you would basically be creating what what this 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 frictionless seamless border that britain has said it wants to create apart quite apart from the fact that it it does seem to be a bit of contradiction with this whole idea of taking back control of of the uk's borders that was was a part of the, the whole purpose of brexit um but you know surely there are fears that it would create some kind of back door uh, into the eu for goods from outside the European Union, like the US, or conversely, a kind of backdoor into Britain for workers from the EU. Um, I mean, what? And could you just run us through quickly what the British government's proposals actually are for uh, for squaring that circle? Well, they haven't squared the circle um, because the circle can't be squared. Mm. Um, what they have suggested is that companies that employ fewer than two hundred and fifty people, small companies, will be exempt from 
customs control and that you would have tr- uh, traded truster um Trade, trust trader, trader um, <laughs> status for big companies, you know, say the Tesco, Marks and Spencer, Guinness, mm. which has operations in Belfast and in Dublin, etc. And that operates now, say in Dover. Mm. Um, you don't have random checks, customs checks for smuggled goods for the big, big, big brand companies because they have this trusted trader mm. status. Um, it also exists in the Mexico-USA border. However, how can you police that? How can that be regulated? Because goods and services, particularly agricultural goods, have to comply with veterinary standards, rules of origin on the product. How can those be policed? The um, EU would want those policed by the European Court of uh, Justice, which um, is not in Theresa May's Brexit plan. In terms of um, people, the common travel area exists. It's not just between Ireland and and the UK. It also includes um, the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man. Um, and the interesting thing is in the Northern Ireland position paper, the, there's a slight change that the position up to now, the wide assumption is that it, it means that anybody who travels from the UK to Ireland or vice versa does not have passport controls. Mm. So that could be an EU citizen, it could be a third country national. Mm. Uh, so that vulnerability to backdoor entry to the UK has always existed, but the position paper changes that too, that the CTA would only apply to those Irish passport and British passport holders. So it would mean EU citizens are blocked from mm. free travel between Dublin and or Belfast. But it's not just actually your right to go across the border without passport controls because the CTA also allows, for instance, Irish people to live in Britain and work and vote as if they were British citizens. So there are different standards or whatever have been historically applied. Well, the vote, the vote comes in different legislation. But it's all part of that special relationship. Between of, Ireland and the... And between the Ireland. And, and yeah. it does exclude, you know, and it was written and done at a time before both member states were member states. Mm when the demography was very different. And we now have something like 300,000 EU citizens who are not Irish and not British living on the island. About 40,000 of them probably are working in Northern Ireland. Hmm. So there's a whole issue around that. And Theresa Villiers, for instance, who is one of the very hardline Brexit, uh, pro-Brexit people who was also a former Secretary of State here, you know, she has said on several occasions, well, it doesn't matter because... EU citizens are very welcome to come as tourists <laughs> and then they just won't be allowed to work or use services or um, live here. And that will be policed theoretically by your employers and your doctors and your universities and your school teachers mm. to see who will be allowed to, to you know, mm. settle or whatever. And I think it's true that they don't really mind how many EU citizens we stockpile here as long as they're not going to get into Britain. And and in the Brexit event, as I did last week, Brexit and Health, it was very clear from the midwives that they are not going to be policing anyone that comes to their door, any pregnant woman that comes to their door that needs aid and assistance, they will be given that to her. Mm. And rightly so. It's absolutely barbaric that uh, that the British government would suggest that all of those, for instance, health service workers and others, and there are many of them, EU, that the National Health Service, NHS, could not survive without. Many of them are feeling unwanted and unwelcome and are already leaving. Mm. I think, on the, John, on the, on the freedom of movement across the border, there's, uh, I think this widely held view is that in practice, um, the backdoor, it already exists and you don't have very many numbers. You're talking about hundreds of people who are stopped 
um, either in Belfast or in Dublin or in Wexford, who might be unlawful um, immigrants. Say, for example, a few years ago, there was a a pilot scheme run between the British and Irish um, immigration authorities on uh, applications for asylum from Nigeria. And they found that 500 of 1700 applications made in Ireland were from people who had already been rejected in the UK. So they're not huge numbers. Um, so the EU citizens who come to Ireland or to Britain want to work and they want to do it legally. They don't want to be mm. on the black market. Mm. Mm. They're, they're not the people that, that are going to be picked up at any immigration checks. But I mean, one of the other points that we have been making going on to some of the issues around peace in the border, yes. that it's not just, you know, checkpoints that could be attacked um, by people who have political access to grind against the border. But, you know, in terms of... of community cohesion, community relations in the north, we've already seen since the referendum a spike in hate crimes against East Europeans and people being challenged by their neighbours about their right to live, their right to work, the right to mm. use doctor services, etc. So and one of the concerns that we would have very much in terms of the peace agreement and the, and the, and the peace process mm. is what will happen if you know, there are people who will be challenging other people's rights to be here and who are they and, and do they have the right to settle or not settle? Do they right, have the right to work? So especially if you're devolving or there's an attempt to devolve the management and the policing of that down to institutions and to employers, etc., I think, you know, it bodes very badly for um, community tensions and community relationships. Yeah. And Martina, where do you see the specific threats to the peace process uh, from any from a change in the border? I mean, how re- how realistic is that threat in your view? Well, like the peace process has many parts and the Good Friday Agreement had three strands. The strand one was the assembly, for instance, and how the assembly would function. And if Theresa May is saying last week that she's going to uphold the Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts, well, the ministers that that came out because of this co-associational model of government that we have um, had to, according to the 1998 Act, it's quite clearly stated that the Stormont ministers must act in compliance with EU law. So if, for instance, EU law is not is going to be tampered with in the manner that she's saying on the one hand, how will our assembly operate within the context of the Good Friday Agreement and how are we going to uphold the strand one of the Good Friday Agreement? Mm. How are we going to uphold strand two? You know, the implementation bodies there is a cooperation. Lisa had mentioned some, for instance, around, you know, food safety or regulations, mm. you know, across the across the island. The regulatory standard across the island has to comply with EU law. So we cannot have some kind of hokey-cokey arrangement where part of Ireland is in the EU, part of out, and part of it is, for instance, doesn't have the same regulatory standards around food safety. Mm. So the Strand 2, the North-South Ministerial Council, that again was established under the Good Friday Agreement, that must act in compliance, it must implement EU programmes and policies. So how is the political institutions that were formed out of the Good Friday Agreement on top of the issues with the border going to function if on the one hand we're being told the Good Friday Agreement is going to be upheld, protected, supported, and on the other we see the damage that is being done to the entire peace process in all of its strands. Mm. And I think that's where we need people like yourselves, John, and others to be putting a bright shine and a bright 
light on the peace process and all that was agreed. And that obviously includes the arrangements around the border, but it also includes the functionality of Stormont. It also includes the All-Ireland element of it, and it includes the East-West element of it. And it's okay, Theresa May, whispering sweet nothings in our ear and telling us that, for instance, Article 50, when she triggered that, that she wouldn't jeopardise the peace process. And then in front of our very eyes Mm. goes to exploit the very circumstances, the uniqueness, the special circumstances that we need in Ireland to ensure that that is not the case, that it is not damaged. And she is doing so to try to move the EU onto the future relationship. On the first hand, she's saying we want to leave the EU, but she doesn't want to negotiate how she's going to leave the EU. It is absolutely, I have to say, it's shambolic. And here I'm in Brussels as we speak. And when you consider that David Davis turned up for the third time yesterday and, and, and lasted for an hour and left, he might have left a number of civil servants. Civil servants don't do the negotiations. It's politicians. And I have to say they are not at their races. They are behaving like British buffoons. And they're being, people are looking at them with shock and awe to say that this is the kind of representation that the people have sent over to try to negotiate a withdrawal when they don't want to talk about a withdrawal. They want to talk about the future. Can I can I just in, uh, intercept there? Um, the real shame about this at the moment is there's no power sharing. There hasn't been an, an assembly in Northern Ireland since January. And the, the terrible thing is that, the, that Northern Ireland has not been represented. The nationalist community has not been represented. You don't take your seats in Westminster. I mean, would one of the solutions be that you, the DUP, have have power now because of their compact with the Tory uh, government? There's no countervailing viewpoint in any... Um, in a political institution because because of the uh, collapse of Stormont, would, West, would Sinn Féin countenance abandoning its policy of abstentionism and take its seats in Westminster? You see, Lisa, what people like you and others don't accept is that the people, the Republican Nationalist community has turned their back on Westminster. They have sent over seven people, seven MPs who are abstentionists. And that was the record and the platform and the mandate upon which we stood. People are looking to the Irish government and to Europe to protect them because they know that the British government will not. And nor do we feel that we should be interfering in laws that are going to affect England um, or anywhere else in Britain. And we would like them not to be interfering in ours. So it's very, very clear. And you shouldn't disregard the hundreds of thousands of people who voted for Sinn Féin for that particular reason. So we will not be changing our position on abstentionism. The people voted very, very clearly. But it's not just about what is the question of Sinn Féin going to do about this. I can stand on the record what I have been doing and what we have been doing as Sinn Féin MEPs over here. Hence the reason why the European Parliament voted overwhelmingly to preserve and protect the Good Friday Agreement in all of its causes. Not one mention of the Good Friday Agreement was raised in Westminster. Not even the word GFA was put in to its bill when it was going through before it triggered Article 50. And so you can see what we have been doing in the European Parliament. We are on the side of the pa- on the table that matters, and that's the side of the table that we believe is going to preserve and protect the Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts and the people of Ireland. So the, the only solution... The, the only solution for for you is for uh, uh, Northern Ireland to have some kind of special status within within the European Union. Well, we have presented a case, John, to that effect. And can I say that we need an executive established tomorrow? And Sinn Féin is willing 
and ready to get an executive established based on good governance and what you wouldn't want your people in your uh, community or in your country to have as a government that is going to allocate resources based on creed and not need. You shouldn't insist that the people of the north of Ireland should be accept, uh, should, should actually be subjected to that. Martin McGuinness stretched himself like no other politician had done to try to make this work. And the DUP said he was playing chicken. Mm. So we are where we are. We need to get it back, but we need to do it based on good governments, equality and respect for all in our society. And I am sure that, Lisa, that you and others would support that. Ruth, where, where do you see the solution? I mean, is this a, is this a completely intractable problem? Um, well, it is very hard to see how the um, positions of the European Union and the Irish government can be reconciled with some of the positions that the British UK government is putting forward. I mean, I wouldn't use the terminology special status within the EU because I think it sometimes can be misunderstood in translation sometimes in European circles. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it is absolutely essential that the special circumstances of Ireland and Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland are recognized in terms of, particularly in terms of the peace process, um, but also because aside from Gibraltar, which is a very, very hard border, yeah. um, we do have the only land border. It is, it is a unique border in the sense of its openness and its rurality, but also the history of difficulties around it when it was tried to be closed. And you know, even with it the way it is, um, there's certainly issues around, for instance, around smuggling. Those mm-hmm. will be off the chart if, yes. if that status of that border changes. Um, but also the livelihoods of people who live and work here because, I mean, as you talked about earlier, the economy is very integrated, but people's lives are very integrated, especially around the border region. Mm. People cross that border every day and some people's properties are split by the border. Yes. Yeah. You know, so it, it does need looked at. And, and going back to something Martina was saying earlier, about the Good Friday Agreement, the Northern Ireland Act of 1998, which was, you know, brought in to implement the agreement, it actually references specifically the European Court of Justice. Exactly. And people can mm. sort of say, oh, that doesn't really matter. It's just a technical, you know, uh, we'll do a little amendment or tweaking here and there. But as soon as you start going into things like the agreement or the legislation around that and start picking that apart... Mm-hmm. Given the the political problems we have here where we don't have consensus and we don't have mm-hmm. even the functioning government to give people's voices um, and make sure that the you know the devolved regions, but going back you know to the time of the referendum, not only was Northern Ireland not taken into account, the devolved regions were not taken into account, and they're very specific circumstances because I know Scotland has similar issues around the need for um, you know, a differentiated immigration policy, for instance, not something else we would be recommending that gets looked at and could be done even with it, whichever way Brexit goes, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, we do have very different conditions here. We do have different populations. Um, and certainly, especially given the dependence on agriculture, you know, today's Guardian had a very long article about the, the food chains and, and things in, yes. in Britain. yes. For us, that's even more acute because agriculture is so much more important. And losing, for instance, the rural development policies that we have with the European programs. um, You know, the big North American models of agricultural production do not 
suit here mm-hmm. and we have the protections un- under the rural development policy so even you know small holdings and rural communities are protected because you have a very different approach rather than just um, pure market forces or whatever driving everything down for the sort of cheap food policy. But and, and the government, the British government's proposals so far, for, you know, for the sort of you know electronic surveillance and and, and number plate recognition and 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 you know virtual documents and and all this kind of thing just don't 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 come anywhere near solving this. Not a chance. Hmm. You know, and you will have more. You will have a lot more. You know. There's already cooperation going on between North and South in terms of at governmental level around criminality and, and problems around smuggling and hazardous waste being dumped and all that sort of stuff. That will just multiply. Mm. I mean, beyond. there is one other solution, which I, you know, you, you one, one barely dares mention, really, but, but has been touted uh, uh, in the Irish Times, I think, today by an, an academic, which is, which is, I don't know how you pronounce it either, but IRXIT. Um, is that a no remotely on the cards? Nope, not a chance. Not a chance. Not a mission. I th- don't. I don't think it's on the cards. The you know, it's not. It's it's not real. But I think it's very very interesting argument to put forward. And the argument is based on um, the history, the historic, recent historic experience that Ireland has had at the hands of the EU, and that was um, goes back to 2010, 2011, when uh, Irish Bank collapsed and brought with it um, lots of bondholders and a couple of other banks um, and the ECB um, it emerged only last year um, confirmation that the ECB had had actually threatened to withdraw cash, emergency cash that was p- being pumped into the central bank um, unless the Irish government protected the bondholders they were private bondholders so the Irish government did as it was, as it was told it was well behaved to protect the euro um, um, but it's the taxpayers who were left on the hook for it and that has left a very, very nasty taste in people's mouths. And what Ray Kinsler, the professor uh, in economics at UCD, is arguing today is that, um, yes, you don't have to refight that battle, but you have to um, learn from the past. And um, his, his point is, and a point made by a former ambassador called Ray Bassett also, is that the EU is um, skewed towards the surplus countries, the big countries. Ireland is a peripheral nation. And no matter how well it behaves, that the EU at the end of the day will not be advocating for Ireland and, and, and it might have a, a solution imposed on it. And, and also uh, purely and simply that the, the, the Irish and, and British economies are so closely linked that it might just in the end prove impossible. Yes, that neighbourly trade interests are, are the same. The, that is the, the Remainers argument um, to stay within the EU is that Britain's um, best interests are its trade relations with its neighbours in Europe. I think there is a lot of wishful thinking on the part of the pro-Brexit um, brigade in in the UK that, you know, Ireland has had this dependent relationship on the UK. Therefore, Ireland will have to follow the UK out of the Europe. But, you know, there are a lot of things you could be very critical of the European Union for in terms of its treatment of Greece and Ireland and all of that. But, you know, the alternative is to be very much on you know, isolated, out on a limb. And also, you know, people in Ireland think of themselves as part of Europe. They think of themselves as part of a bigger picture. They have a different identity. 
there's absolutely no political will for an IRA exit and yeah. there's no voter will. The last survey in May showed that 88% want to remain in the EU. It's a non-starter. However, it's good to have that in the debate. But can we also put in the debate when you're talking about that is A, the very fact that without doubt uh, Sinn Féin has been critically engaging with the EU. The EU needs reform and it needs mm. serious mm. reform. But I can also assure you and your listeners that the um, the people of Ireland long history with Britain, as well as what it has what has happened to it uh, in recent times with the EU, is long in its memories. So it will not be following Britain out of the EU to try to get some kind of cosy relationship with the with the British government. The British government has a history with Ireland that is being understood. But what we do need to try and ensure that we protect all of the people of Ireland, because Brexit is going to, where you live in Derry or Kerry, Brexit is going to have an implication across Ireland, north, south, east and west. Hence, and whether Ruth calls it unique status or I think we could have a discussion about the terminology, that's somewhat irrelevant. It's really what the ingredients are of the status. And there are 25 overseas countries and territories within the EU with different status. And I think that the unique and flexible arrangements that that the EU is calling for is actually contained within the case that has been put forward by Sinn Féin for designated special status or unique status or whatever one wants to call it for the North to remain within the EU, given that the British government mentioned the uniqueness and how unique uh, the North of Ireland and Ireland was 20 times in its document on the 16th of August. Is the, I mean, we're running out of time now. I just want to do a final little sort of round of the, uh, uh, of the table to ask you each whether you think this problem is so intractable um, that it could be the wheel on which Brexit is, is, is broken. I mean, is it, a, is it a solvable problem, Martina? Well, when I listened to uh, Theresa May uh, when she landed in her trip to Japan, who just yesterday and today is still talking about, you know, no deal is better than a bad deal. And she's still talking about the language that, um, in the one hand, I think we're hearing from some of her, the workers that they have left here, they realise that they need more time. But the EU has been very clear, very precise about the time frame and how it should go forward. My concern about this is primarily the constituency we come from, the country we come from, and I believe that there is a solution for us to take this forward, and it is around uniqueness, special status of the North to remain within the EU or Irish unity. I do think there are problems coming to Britain if they don't remain within the custom union, if they don't get an agreement, and if they don't send over some serious negotiators that actually know what they're doing as opposed to the blind mice that is coming over here okay. that's really having a clue how to negotiate. <laughs> All right, Ruth, is, uh, do, do you, do you, do you uh, find your views reflected in that? It can be very hard to be optimistic when you see the quality and, and you know, the Commission representatives have, have been making the same criticisms. Mm. When you go through these documents, how little hard... Um, promises there are actually there's a lot of how realistic uh, they are really they're not realistic Mm. at all and so the only thing we have in the ireland northern ireland document that they've really committed themselves to is maintaining the common travel area you know as it exists Mm. and you know continuing to fund the peace four program which they should be funding anyway and the treasury promised a year ago would be continued to be funding till 
2020 anyway, and presumably is part of the discussion around the outstanding financial obligations. But, you know, that program, again, is already there. They're making no promises other than some nice noises about continuing that. They haven't talked about any of the other Mm. European funding programs that we have made such a difference here. So there's nothing hard that you can actually say they're actually making a commitment to. So, you know, I have to endorse all the criticism that have been made by the Commission representatives about how little is actually in these documents once you actually start picking them apart. And you're not you're not optimistic, Lisa. Are you optimistic? I, I, regarding regarding Northern Ireland, no. Um, I do think it is close to intractable, um, but I think th- uh, largely because the European Parliament has already said it um, will have the final say, um, and uh, it may well vote in favour of Ireland if uh, the, the solution isn't favourable to the Dublin government. Um, and then there is also the possibility that it was mooted in Germany a few months ago that each country. Um, would have a say if there was a transition arrangement. So the deal, the final deal, as we know, has to be approved by a qualified majority of mm. the 27, but a transition may well be, it's open to question, um, but may well be um, uh, have to be approved by each of the 27, which would give Ireland a veto. Ha, which might open up a whole other can of worms. All right, well, listen, I think we have to leave it there. Thank you very much. My thanks to Lisa O'Carroll, Martina Anderson and Ruth Tayon for joining me. Please subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter. If you want to get in touch about Brexit stuff, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. And if you'd like to review the pod and be in with a chance of featuring in our podcast weekly column, then email podcasts at theguardian.com. Till next week then, I'm John Henley. The producer is Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit Means. And thank you for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.